0: Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and this week I'm going back in the archives to one of my favorite interviews of all time. There are some people you talk to and you're just brought right into the conversation, hanging on every word, and Sheila Rogers is one of those people. Her voice, her honesty, the warmth of her personality, it's a rare gift. Sheila's the host of the next chapter on CBC Radio. She's an officer of the Order of Canada And she's also a very public face for mental health awareness in Canada. If you know anything about my story, you know that's a pretty big deal for me. I've seen a lot of it, and I spent last summer cycling across Canada to raise funds for mental health services. Sheila is one of those people that got me thinking about it and thinking about using the voice I had to do something. She's dealt with depression, and her story is a captivating one. I sat down with her back in 2013 when she paid a visit to King's College at Western University. Here's her story. Sheila, I wanted to start by bringing up a quote. of This is pulled off of your bio, and it refers to the Canadian Canoe Museum, and you say that we're all in the same boat. Now, What does that mean to you?
1: What it means to me is uh, that we're all human and that we all suffer in some ways and that we need to support each other in our suffering. We need to be, I love the root of the word compassion, because what it really literally means is to suffer with. And, uh, and I think we are all in the same boat. The statistics in Canada say that one out of five Canadians suffers from a mental illness or will in their life. And I really believe it's it's probably closer to one in four. We know about the one in five because they are the people that will come forward. There are people who don't feel that they can come forward yet. So being in the same boat means that we've got to get in the boat and help the person that is dealing with that person. And I love the canoe metaphor very much because... We get in a canoe and we all pull, we all go forward together. And that's important to me in a number of areas uh, in my life. But without the support I had uh, with family and friends and, and also some of my colleagues at the CBC, I would not have recovered. I don't say I'm cured, but I do feel I have recovered from unipolar depression.
0: Depression is something that a lot of Canadians deal with and many students as well. Uh, why did you feel it was so important for you to share your story and, and to raise awareness about depression?
1: I think if people like me don't come forward, we're very fortunate, and uh, uh, if people like me don't, if so- so-called celebrities, I don't see myself as a celebrity, but I know that you know roughly a million people listen to the program i'm doing right now so i know my name has some kind of recognizability i want to take the sting out of it i i want people to feel that this is to understand it's an illness it's not something spooky it can be scary i'm not denying that but it's Mental illness is an illness first and foremost. And we don't seem to have any fear talking about other illnesses or other conditions like diabetes or high blood pressure or even cancer. People are very open about talking about cancer. And when I first started as a broadcaster about 400 years ago, people were not that open. I mean, people got even a little bit giddy. uh, You know, just, it was like, it was such, it was, you know, they called it the C word, right? And um, now that's, that's really changed. So, in fact, I, I, I have to be perfectly honest with you. I got a big kick in the pants to speak publicly about it from a singer named Amy Skye. And Amy uh, suffered from postpartum depression, and she was talking about her depression in an interview with me. And when we got off the air, she said, you seem to really understand what I was talking about. And I said, well... I was diagnosed with depression in 2003, unipolar depression. And she said, well, you should be out there talking about it because you can really help. And I feel I have talked about it, and I've come to London a number of times to talk about it, actually. But if one person comes up at the end and says, I think that's my story too, or maybe that's my my brother or my husband, then I feel, okay, then my voice has been of use.
0: So when did this uh, all start for you, and when did you kind of notice that maybe you weren't feeling uh, as as you thought you maybe should, or, or you weren't feeling just quite well?
1: It would have been in university. I went to Queen's, and uh, I was 17. I remember going in to see... So I knew something was wrong. I was feeling like I couldn't get out of bed, and it was going on for weeks. And... Unfortunately, the person who saw me said that it was all hormonal and that it would go away. Uh, And so for the next probably three decades or so, I skewed my symptoms towards hormones and not what was really actually wrong with me. And I thought, you know, over the years... uh, if this is PMS, this has to be the worst case of PMS that's ever existed. But I thought that's what it was. And I also thought, man, I must be one of the most unsocial people in the world. I mean, uh, when in fact, you know, I really love being in the company of other people and I love participating fully in my life. But there were weeks where I wouldn't answer calls on on the answering machine as, you know, we used to have answering machines, right? And uh, I didn't answer the phone. Um, I just couldn't get out of bed and I would make up like I'd say I have pink eye I'd say that to my colleagues at mm-hmm. work or you know really bad flu or oh I think I've got strep throat I, because I didn't actually know what it was but I knew even after a week there were times I wasn't ready sometimes this was two or three weeks and then I had in 2003 uh what is sometimes called a breakdown and for me, my breakdown was actually a breakthrough because I finally was diagnosed and I was able to attack it. I was able to treat it. And um, it was when I first received the diagnosis via the psychiatrist, um, I thought, that, that there's no way. That's not me. I'm... Uh, I'm I'm known at the CBC as someone with, you know, a smile in my voice and all of that stuff, but Um, it was me. It absolutely was me and I realized sort of about two or three days later Now I now that's what what's been eating me all these years and it was uh, it was so great to get that help
0: All those years, uh, when you say it's been eating at you Were there any kind of outward signs? How did you present yourself to the people around you?
1: That's an excellent question I really think I learned to cover it up. Uh, you will understand that the kind of jobs that I've been lucky to inhabit are are the kinds of jobs a lot of people want. And um, I, w- I didn't want to give up my position working with Peter Zosky or Host of the Arts tonight, whatever, whatever I happen to be doing. National programs are a real honor to work on. And um, I, so I learned to perform through it. And I, my, my dear friend Oliver Schroer, who was a fiddle player who died uh, about three years ago, also suffered from depression. And I talked to him about it and said, how is it you're able to go out and play? And he said, I can do that because that's the world I know. It's my real life that I can't make my way through. And I think that was really true for me. People have talked over the years, I'm going to be very candid about this, about my laugh, and I'm going to say that not it wasn't always real. I listened to old tapes, and I, I, I think I almost hear a hyena-like creature. But I think I was overcompensating for how I was really feeling inside and felt I couldn't bring that forward. There wasn't really a forum to do that, I didn't feel that there was a safe place to do that at the CBC. Um, Plus, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I mean, that was the biggest deal. I knew something was bothering me. um, And whether it was hormonal or not, I had to get past it because I wanted to keep my position. I wanted to be where I was because these jobs are amazing. It's like you've got the, the biggest sort of smorgasbord of interesting people across the country in my case and in other people's cases around the world to talk to and if I was curious about something I could bring in a person to tell me about it so I I think the way I presented myself was falsely I created a persona and it was like putting on a uniform to go to work and then I get home and I couldn't talk or I would be really just sort of empty with the people I loved, my family. And um, and that really did go on and off for years. I remember a friend of mine, and I, I actually just saw her last night, saying I used to do a disappearing act and uh, that I would just, just disappear into myself even if I were in a room. And uh, But at work, I would really, really force myself to be somebody else, uh, not the person that was suffering from this. And uh, most of it was uh, I just wanted to preserve what I had.
0: You mentioned the word unipolar a couple times. Uh, I'm just curious as to what that uh, if you could give a, an easy enough to understand definition of, of unipolar depression.
1: Yeah, it's, well, I'll say this, it's different for everybody, but it's it's not exactly the opposite of bipolar disorder, where you have very big manic highs and very, very low periods. Unipolar would say there's only one pole, and it's the south pole. It's the low pole. Um I talked to Margaret Trudeau, not to drop a name, but, you know, I know her through mental health circles. She once said to me, I feel badly for you because you can't enjoy the big highs. And I said, that's not true. When I'm well, I really enjoy the highs of life. But in her case, um, it would mean perhaps singing a song to the Venezuelan president or, you know, uh, in in my case, I just want to enjoy my life. I think the unipolar or major depressive episode, as it's called, is you're in this hole and you can't get out of it. Um, And there isn't that sort of, it's not even an opposite end. People with bipolar disorder fear the highs as much as the lows. They're they're equally as uh, nerve-wracking, you know, um, and sometimes soul-destroying. So I can tell you what it's like to be in one of these depressive episodes, uh, and the biggest word I have is emptiness. Nothing matters. It's a void. It's like this big, huge desert of nothing. And... That's despairing. That is, I when I had this breakdown, I lost my voice. I couldn't even talk. I squawked. Um, I remember being curled up almost literally for weeks on the bathroom floor, just in like a fetal position, um, losing any interest in caring for myself. And you can think of the implications of that. Um, whether it was showering or brushing my teeth or anything, I didn't want to participate. It didn't matter. Nothing mattered. And um, what got me out of it was uh, someone who really cared about me, my husband. And he made sure that I got help. He took me to my doctor when this thing just took over my life. And um, and I'd had a diagnosis, and everything's been very different since.
0: Tell me about that breakthrough and and when things started to change for you.
1: It wasn't immediate, uh, that's for sure. I went on a number of medications until I found the one that worked for me. I mean, that's a journey in itself. But once I had the specific medication that really helped, I felt something lift. And I was able to go about my life again. but the biggest thing that has helped me is talking about it. I went to see, and now I'm a very, very fortunate person because the CBC has a has a good health plan. And I was able to see a psychologist two or three times a week to try to work this through. And it, that was supported almost 100%. I realize that is not everybody's story, and especially if you're a student, you you may not necessarily have a health plan, but um, I mean, you don't probably. But um, I was very, very lucky, and taking a look at my life and being able to kind of reframe my narrative helped me enormously. And to this day, um, I have people I will call when I, I feel it coming on, and I have a physical sensation of shutting down. Um, the first thing that happens is I feel like my mouth is looks like Hannibal Lecter's mouth, mm-hmm. um, just kind of a cudge, and I can't move my I can't unclench my jaw. So when that happens, I go to someone right away, and um, it's not a psychiatrist, it's not a psychologist, or a medical doctor. It's an Anglican minister, and he helps me. He has really helped me a lot. Um, I also make sure that I do ten thousand. I wear this pedometer here. Um, you know the Nike Fuel Band. It's a lot of. It's pretty cool, but I, I need to do ten thousand steps a day, and I am at five eight seven two. I will do those 10,000 steps if I have to walk around this lovely little suite before I go to bed because that's like my medicine now. And I will go to bed and make sure I get eight hours of sleep. So, And I also have edited out certain friends. Um, I don't want to be with people I feel uncomfortable with or people I feel I have to compete with. I want to be with people who accept me as I am. And that is something I really wished I had learned a long, long time ago. Um, A lot of this for me has been trying to be someone else. And once I stopped trying to be someone else, um, I just began to feel a lot better.
0: Tell me about some of the, or maybe the biggest misconception that you think uh, surrounds depression and what needs to be debunked.
1: Mm -hmm. I think the biggest thing is that you are in control of it. When you hear people say, get over it, um, or, you know, get on with your life, um, or put being so indulgent, you have everything. You shouldn't feel this way. This isn't something you want to conjure. This isn't something you want to bring upon yourself. It's something that comes in as a flu does, as any other illness, it moves into you. You, I don't have control over it. I mean, I think I'm fighting it really well. I haven't had an episode for six years, which I think is amazing. I'm really, that, that pleases me. But I'm not, I keep looking over my shoulder. Um, but I do think, to answer your question, I think that's the biggest misconception, that somehow this is something you bring upon yourself or you know you're looking for sympathy or whatever it is um no nobody wants this this is this is just not something you want to go through and i mean you think about can i lay this out you think about killing yourself you thinking think about the only way you can stop this and when the psychiatrist interviewed me and said do you ever have thoughts of suicide or suicidal ideation and i said yeah, sure. doesn't everybody? And he he didn't say anything. And when he'd asked me all the questions, he said, "No, most people don't think about that. And uh, you know, it, so you know this is this is pain. This is not something that you wish upon yourself. and but at the same time, you know, it's an illness, it's treatable, and and we have the tools. We do not have accessibility. In, in broader society and I really hope that that will change in our lifetimes it's very important.
0: You can correct me if I'm wrong here but you referred to depression before as uh, your dragon mm-hmm. and uh, you say uh, sometimes it's good to let the dragon out uh, it's sometimes it's telling you something mm-hmm. uh, tell me about that.
1: Well I think that not all sadness or grief is a bad thing or anger and I, I have found that there's probably a very close relationship between anger and depression. And I I am learning to deal with anger, and, and be, instead of just sort of blowing up and then having no more energy left, um, so that you're just kind of a toasted, crispy little thing, uh, I don't do that anymore. And I I really do believe in the power of choosing responses to things and uh and but I do feel you know yes the dragon can represent a lot of different things and sometimes there's there is power in that anger or there is sadness you have to go through that you can't I'll use the example of my father dying um five and a half years ago I was just starting up a new program the next chapter and I didn't grieve. He, he died sep- September 12th. The program started September 28th. I had to get that first program done. I had to do the interviews. And I postponed my own grief um, to, to his death and over his death. And of course, you know, middle of November, ugh, I just collapsed. So letting it out is important, understanding that, you know, we, we judge these emotions, we think, oh, sadness is bad, it's, you know, it's a negative thing, grief is, is a negative thing. They aren't, they aren't negative things. Even anger can be very energy giving, you know, um, or, or there are ways that you can work with it, go for a run, um, go for a swim, work it out in a different way than just exploding um, but I do think it is important to not stuff it back in all the time and that's that's something I'm really trying to work with now
0: you mentioned earlier that there is hope for depression there is, uh, you know, it, it can be treated um, how have you experienced that in your own life and, and found joys in, in things uh, since then
1: mm. um, that's a great question and well the very first thing is that there is help and without I and as I say this is I know I've I am the story that everyone should ha- should inhabit. Uh, it's kind of a fairy tale, sadly, because there are so many delays built into the system. But finding joy again, I remember the first time I thought I'm happy. I and it was just wow you know I realized I felt happiness it wasn't just a kind of yeah I'm going through my life and I'm going through the motions I actually felt a joy about being alive and about being able to read this book or hang out with my husband or walk my dog nothing really big nothing really big it actually is the little things I think that add up to joy at least in my life um, and I've I've also been I've been in the company Of some wonderful, wonderful people And I met uh, An Aboriginal elder named William Kamanda a couple of years Before he died, he's an Algonquin Elder, and without Even telling him that I've been dealing with Depression over my life He said, you know, when you're not Feeling well, you should just Go out into nature and Forgive yourself, and that stayed with me um and it always will it's true you f- you have to forgive yourself for feeling that you're worthless that you're in my case you know if i take time off the air someone has to fill in for me and that's not only another person doing my work it's a cost it's not true anymore cuz i'm a freelancer <laughs> but uh but in in those days um it did mean that someone had to double up on on work they were doing themselves so, getting rid of guilt, get getting rid of the shame of this, uh, and and forgiving yourself, and then also forgiving the people who don't get it, the people who haven't necessarily supported you, um, that feels really good. That feels really, really good. And uh, and I think there's just um, there's just a lot of joy in that, a lot of happiness in that.
0: that's it for the show thanks for listening and I hope you liked it it's one of my favorites if you like the show you can do me a favor and hit subscribe it's on Apple Podcasts Google Play Stitcher and at storyuntold.blueberry.com you can also really help out by leaving a review or pass it along to someone else you think might like it theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um I'll Ah once again I'm Martin Bauman and this was a story untold see you next time